You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Hey, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where... Each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning, enough to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we discussed the eighth wonder of the world, also known as compounding, and why trend following is particularly good at benefiting from the fact that money makes money and the money that money makes, makes money. So if you missed that episode, I invite you to check this out as well as, by the way, episode two in our new series on volatility, which was uh, released on Wednesday. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund CTA or quant investment world, whatever you prefer to call it. And if you want to be part of our community and this journey, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can send us your question, if you can share these episodes, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it, as this is the way for us to see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes, and as long as that continues, we will continue to do them, of course. Rob, great to be back with you this week after a, an interesting month of October, I will say, and also an interesting start to November, especially if you're in the fixed income markets like you used to be. But first off, how are you doing? How are things in the UK? And have you been enjoying the latest ABBA album released yesterday? <laughs> I'll be completely honest with you. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of ABBA and, you know, the old stuff I play quite a lot, but... Um... Uh, I'm not a huge, like a super fan, and what what I've heard of the of the latest stuff hasn't you know made me su super uh, interested enough to actually go out and buy the album. I'm afraid. So, yeah, sorry about that. No, you know, hats off to the you know, hats off to them not giving up and and uh, coming out with new music. I think that's fantastic. But I was watching the news yesterday when they showed a few clips from with Apple in the studio and just seeing these. And, you know, we're all going to get there, but 70-plus-year-old singing pop music, it's kind of weird, I have to say. <laughs> but I, my my daughter played me a few weeks ago, I think, the first uh, songs that they released. And, you know, frankly, it wasn't too bad. So, anyways, I think there was a little bit of a, uh, a side jump. Now, I'll do my um, market wrap. Um, I, would, I was going to say quickly, but actually there's so much to talk about, so it might take a little bit longer. But... We also have quite a lot of uh, things to talk about. You've got some great topics. We've got a few questions. So let's just uh, dive into all of this. And of course, as always, I want to give a shout out to all of you who did leave a rating and review this week. We so much appreciate that. Now, this was supposed to be the week that the Fed, the Bank of England, and to a lesser instead, uh, extent, the ECB released uh, or eased off, I was meant to say, east off the accelerator of monetary policy. As communicated for several months now, Chairman Powell announced that the Fed would begin to taper open market purchases in the amount of $15 billion per month. At the post-meeting press conference, which is typically a non-controversial kind of softball affair, 
The tone of the Q&A got a little bit confrontational. Powell reiterated repeatedly that the Fed was in no way prepared to raise Fed funds rate. After driving home that point, the line of questioning turned to the trading scandal that cost Fed Presidents Kaplan and Rosen Green their jobs. And Powell was put through the uh, rhetorical ringer with questions like how he restored the confidence of the American people and if he felt the new policy went far enough. He got through those questions with an even tone, but when asked if the trading scandal would hurt his chances for Biden to renominate him and for Congress to approve his nomination, there was decidedly a bit of annoyance in his, I'm not going to answer that question, kind of response. Otherwise, investors were delighted that the rate hike is not completely or is not com complemented anytime soon, as witnessed by the simultaneous rally in stocks and bonds to close out the week. Now, the Bank of England, much closer to Europe, on the other hand, didn't follow Fed's lead of doing exactly what they've said they were going to do. The BOE had bond traders prepared for a rate hike on Thursday, but instead decided to leave the rate unchanged by a vote of 7 to 2. The yield in the two-year guilt fell 30 basis points on a stunning lack of action. Not surprisingly, the English Central Bank lost an enormous amount of credibility and with it the ability to jawbone the market, a useful tool to persuade markets to move at their will. Now, the European Central Bank continued to parrot the transient inflation theme offering no end to the emergency monetary policy mantra. The equity markets all um, felt pretty good about this and closed near all-time highs. Of uh, course, the biggest U.S. news of the week was the stunning defeat of Democrats at Tuesday's election and the implication that that may have on the debt ceiling, which is set to be reached in about a month. The Republicans are unlikely to want to give the Democrats a win by postponing the cap again. That would be problematic for the markets, especially with the year-end rapidly approaching. Now, next week, we will focus on producer and consumer price indices, and neither of those are expected to be good news for the inflation. And by the way, maybe a slightly different type of news this week. I just read that Google invested $1 billion in the CME group to help them move to the cloud over the next 10 years, which is, of course, very interesting from our point of view as futures traders. But let's talk about what stood out for you, Rob, since you were last on the show. The market moves, performance, whatever you feel like. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a central banker right now, I'll be honest with you. it's. I think it's a, a difficult job at the best of times. And uh, I think whatever you do, you're going to upset somebody. But, but you know, there we go. Uh, yeah, so I can't remember exactly when I was last on. So I, I did a report back to the beginning of October. So what you're going to hear from me now is a month and a week, roughly, of performance. So um, the good news is it was positive. Um, I was up um, just over um, three, three and a half percent, something like that. Um, and the, the most of the kind of positive news came in um, equity markets. My best performing market was the S&P 400. I said 400 there. That wasn't a Freudian slip. That's not the, the normal 500. One of the things we're talking about later is how I've expanded the range of markets. I've been trading quite dramatically, and I'll explain how I've managed that. Um, also made some money in in, in energies, um, so up in crude, but interestingly down in, in heating oil. Um, but and a few other equity markets are positive as well. But but, but yeah, the the real horror show is fixed income, where you know it's been it's been uh, 
you know, quite violent, and uh, that that did detract from my gains quite a bit. Oh, and as a footnote, I was also I also made a bit of money in in Bitcoin this month. So you know, for all the all you the, were what? Sorry, I've I made, made some money in Bitcoin. Oh, you this made some money in for Bitcoin? all the all the fanboys, Bitcoin fanboys who are listening. I'm sure there are plenty. Yes, so. absolutely. So yeah, just having a kind of look at my my current positioning and risk, which in in some ways is more interesting than the um, the historic view of performance. I think. Um, so on my measure of risk, which obviously is is slightly different from yours, um, which is annualized standard deviation. Um, it's running at 26.5%, which is just a fraction above my long-term average of 25. So I'm running at pretty much bang on average risk. Um, I've got short positions in uh, in gas, um, in bunds, um, in um, FTSE China, eight shares in VIX, and BTPs in US 20 years, Korean 10 years. So a bit of a mixture there, but definitely short bonds on average there, I'd say. Um, and my biggest long positions are still S&P 400. Uh, heating oil as well, which I've mentioned, uh, the Dutch uh, equity markets and good old Bitcoin long there as well. And just scanning that down that list a bit further. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'm long equities. Although interestingly, I can see there kind of standing out slightly as a long in US 10 years. So a, a little bit of dispersion there in my in my positioning in, in fixed income. So mostly short, but just, just a couple of long positions there. So um, yeah, a portfolio that I suppose is kind of positioned for for, for growth, you know, and for inflation, so short bonds mostly, long equities, long Bitcoin. I'm not sure what that means long, long um, most energy markets. So it's kind of sort of pro-inflationary positioning at the moment, I would say. Yeah, no, very interesting, uh, great uh, rundown. And yes, I mean, I think fixed income last month and maybe in the beginning of this month has been tricky for a lot of people. I heard or read on the news, I think that one of the big, really big hedge funds, Bourbon Howard, had a very tough October, I think maybe the worst on record for, for them, which is not a great loss, but it's still a loss. And, um, and you know, let's not forget maybe putting this into context a little bit. I mean, in the US, we've seen the two-year yields go from about 0.15 to, I think, at the high 0.5, which is quite high, and then it's around 0.4 at the moment. So that's kind of a tripling of of the yield, even from even though it's from a low level. And also, um, and I think in the last couple of weeks, I think the Australian central bank completely lost their control of their yield curve, quote unquote, control measures um, in the uh, three year uh, bond that they try and keep at 0.1. Um, the uh, the bonds that I think just trades like a few months after the main one that they focus on went all the way up to 0.8, which is just incredible. And I think maybe, and we don't have to go into it today because I know we have a, a hard stop today, but maybe this is just a little bit of a taste of what happens when interest rate starts to go up. And it is kind of surprising to see that a lot of this action happens in the short end at the moment and not so much in the long end, which I thought was interesting. On our, on our side this week, um, you know, some of the tailwind we enjoyed in October has turned a little bit um, against us in, in early November, causing a little bit of a give back of performance uh, um, in the first week of November. This was no surprise, mostly concentrated in the fixed income markets. And in particular, as I mentioned, the short end of the yield curve, uh, given all that um, central bank action, or maybe in the case of the BOE, inaction. Energy markets also struggled a bit. Uh, their uptrend was halted by kind of a change in sentiment towards the fear about Cushing, Oklahoma, uh, which at some point people were fearing was running out of oil. Now, Cushing is a major trading hub for crude oil and the price settlement 
point for the West Texas intermediary on the New York Mercantile Exchange and is known as the kind of pipeline crossroads of the world. So it is important what goes on there. Grains were a little bit soft in terms of performance this week, as were currencies. But on the other side, softs were actually pretty good. And, um, and also, of course, on our side, the big winner was equity markets um, and where many of them made a new all-time high. My trend barometer, which is much more short-term focused, did turn around and uh, was much weaker. So that's obviously caused by some of the reversals we saw in other than fixed, uh, sorry, equity markets um, and finishing the week at 25, which is pretty low. So I hope that turns back up again next week. In terms of volatility, in the world of volatility, one of the largest impacts on the overall market condition is this rampant speculation taking place in some of the single stock names. The big tech names, of course, but also car rental companies like Avis having an incredible uh, set of moves this week, and uh, which is expressed very often in options to a large extent. Call option buying intensified sharply towards the end of this week. And crucially, this leads to an increased hedging activity by dealers, which leads to an increase in implied volatility of the S&P 500 and therefore also the VIX index and its futures contracts, of course, as that's the most liquid place to hedge volatility exposure. And along these lines, the VIX index increased slightly over the week, despite the S&P rallying 2%, meaning uncertainty, fixed strike volatility increased significantly. On Friday alone, the front month of VIX futures increased by a full point more than the VIX index. Now, our volatility strategy struggled a little bit with this uh, kind of um, market environment, so it was down a bit for this uh, first week. My trend following uh, portfolio, because it is shorter term than uh, what we do at Don, it was actually up this week, up about 1.08% for November, up 9.14% for the year so far. Group 1 models, classic trend, down about a quarter percent. Group 2, trend following with a long bias, down 0.8. But it was really the fast reacting models that were up more than 2% as they caught the reversal in the US 10-year notes uh, quite well and other things. Top 3 uh, markets is really, uh, sorry, sectors, uh, is really just two this uh, so far this month, equities and bonds. And the worst sectors so far is energies, currencies and grains. Single markets doing best so far, NASDAQ, DAX, and 10-year notes, and the worst are gasoline, Canadian, and Australian dollars. Otherwise, quite a lot of activity. I'm not going to go through all of that this week, but in many, many markets, there were a little bit of trading. And in terms of the risk to stop, that uh, ended the week at 12.48%. So if everything gets stopped out on Monday, it should lose about 12.5%. That's up a little bit from about 11.5% about a week ago. Now, before we move on to our topics, we've got a couple of questions. But before we go to the questions, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned crypto. And from memory, and I could have gotten this completely wrong, Rob, but you were a little bit, not from a, I should put it in my portfolio point of view, skeptic, but I think crypto in general, skeptic. I wanted to ask you, now that the SEC has approved a couple of ETFs based on crypto, has that changed your mind at all? I mean, the interesting thing about those ETFs is they're actually based on crypto futures. Um, and I think the, the SEC has been very uncomfortable about the idea of um, approving an ETF which holds um, Bitcoin cash, so to speak. Because, you know, an ETF based on a future is a well-known financial derivative. It's a kind of classic 
um, thing to do. And, you know, a lot of the commodity ETFs, you know, the or the metals often hold physical gold, say. Um, but, you know, the, the oil ETFs often hold um, the future, not, not actual physical oil. And, you know, if, of, in terms of counterparty risk and, and all kinds of things, um, in many ways, a, a Bitcoin future based ETF is a, is a hell of a lot safer and, and, and easy to understand from the SEC's point of view, I think. I think that's the key, the key, the key point to make. So, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it does seem like crypto is not going to go away anytime soon. There is a, a gra- it's gradually kind of edging its way into the sort of rest of the financial system in a sense. But, but um, you know, I still, I still see reports about how the fact that, you know, that what, all the stuff that happened with Tether, um, I still think that, um, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, people are still having Bitcoins stolen and hacked all the time. Maybe one day the crypto ecosystem will be mature and safe and it'll just be another asset class. Okay, that's, that's possible. Um, but on the other hand, if that happens, then it won't really be crypto as the kind of original people who loved crypto wanted it to be, you know, this kind of completely separated from the, the main financial system assets. So um, it, it's kind of a weird dichotomy. I think, um, I think either if, if crypto stays true to its roots as this kind of weird thing that's separated from the financial system deliberately and is anonymous and, and so on and so forth, and truly peer-to-peer, truly decentralized then um, I think it, it doesn't. Re- it, it will probably stay around. There'll always be people who like that sort of thing, but it'll be a very, very small thing indeed. Alternatively, um, it'll, it'll may come become kind of part of the of the major financial system in in some way. Not a, not a, I don't think it'll be a huge part, and I don't think it certainly don't think it'll replace you know, the rest of the the financial system. Maybe we'll see central bank digital currencies at some point. Maybe you'd have people talking about them. Um, and so few people use physical cash nowadays. I, I think that that's probably something that will happen eventually. But but that's not really crypto, right? I mean that you know that that's literally like the central bank can track the money you are you're spending. That that's completely totally different from the original idea of you know the conception of Bitcoin. So 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 yeah. I mean uh, I'm, I'm I'm kind of still. I would. I, I'm I'm certainly probably almost certainly never going to, for example, myself hold physical Bitcoin. Um, I, can't, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Would I buy a Bitcoin ETF based on a future? Well, that doesn't make any sense to me personally because I can just buy the future or sell the future, and I don't have to pay then the um, the management fee. Um, would I buy an ETF based on physical Bitcoin? Maybe I would. Maybe if if the you know if the um, if the kind of rate was low enough, like in, if you talk about maybe ten or fifteen years from now when I'm I'm kind of old and doddery and, and no longer interested in running an active futures portfolio. And I've kind of got a, ser- a suite of long-only investments, which is something I've talked about before on the podcast. Maybe one of those would be a, a cash Bitcoin ETF, if such a thing is exists in, in the future. So, you know, uh, but right now, no. No, fair enough. I mean, I've heard certainly a lot of different types of uh, speculation in terms of where this might be heading. And of course, um, some of what you said is 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 amongst that. I still hear people who believe that at some point governments will realize that it's kind of dangerous to have Bitcoin as a completely kind of a unregulated um, competitor, let's call it that. So they will probably find ways when they're ready and when they have their own 
digital currency find ways to rein in the controls a little bit, but maybe not, as you say, completely get rid of it. So anyways, that's not really the main thrust of our conversation today, although we do have a Bitcoin question in a second. But before we get to that, we have a question from Adam. Adam writes, as usual, loving the regular top quality content, please keep it coming. I've managed to listen to every episode in the back catalog and look forward to a new release every week. Well, Adam, I love your uh, commitment. Thank you so much. I have a question around entering positions based on signals. I often hear you and your guests talking about how you don't go in full risk at your first entry signal, but prefer to only enter part of your total position size at first before waiting for another signal, which might allow you to put in your full position size in a given market. Currently in my system, I go full, I go uh, full position risk at the first entry signal. I only have one entry signal. And while this performs well when it is a winning trade, I will usually pay the cost for that if it becomes a loser and goes to hit the stop. I'm therefore trying to test a way that I can gradually enter into positions rather than go full risk all at once. What strategies do you use for splitting your entry risk across various entry signals? Is it as simple as just choosing longer parameter values for your moving averages if you use them, for example? with the assumption that this means there is more confirmed trend, quote-unquote confirmed trend, which allows you to increase the risk? Or are there any more innovative techniques that can be used here? What a great and appropriate question for you, Rob. Yeah, uh, and I must I feel quite guilty because I certainly haven't listened to every episode in our, in our back catalogue. So, oh my uh, God, yeah. what a bombshell. I feel I should, I should probably do that. I don't usually listen to my own episodes for a start because I'm like, you know, you probably don't have to. Rob. No, exactly. You remember what you've said. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I like listening to the, when the other guests are on, obviously, because they're you know they're quite interesting. But anyway, okay. So the first thing to say is that the way I run my system is probably a bit different from the way that Adam and, and some other people run it, in the sense that I I don't have this concept of a. I've talked about this before of a discrete trade. So I don't have a, a signal that comes on and says, right, I'm now going to do a trade, and then in in the, the way that Adam describes it, to then have another signal come along and say, well, and I'm now going to increase that increase the size of my position, which is effectively like another trade, if you like. So the way my my system works um, is is that um, I produce a forecast, which is um, like a risk normalized estimate of where I think the market's going to go in the future. And that forecast has a strength. So it, it can be weak or strong or very strong. And if you think about it in simple trend-following terms, then then it's quite clear that the, the forecast will be stronger the stronger the trend is. And my forecasts are actually made up of an average of lots of different systems. So, for example, different ways of doing trend-following, trend-following of different speeds, carry, and so on and so forth. But that's not the important thing here. And then what I do is, is basically um, I put on a position that's proportional to the size of that forecast. So what the way that system will behave is very much like Adam described it, Let's say a market's not been going there for a while and is pretty flat, and then gradually a trend starts to develop. I will, when that trend is strong enough that it will justify me putting on a a, a one contract size position, which for a small retail trader like me might take a bit longer than say an institution where you know one contract is kind of just a rounding error. Then I would put on that one contract position. If the trend continues to strengthen, I would then put on another contract and so on and so forth. But those aren't discrete trades per se. So, you know, you, it's very easy to, to kind of use this kind of system, basically. Um, it's quite simple as well, because you don't have like, oh, this is the set of signals I use to decide when to open a position. 
oh, and this is the other set of signals I decide to use when if I decide to make my position bigger. Because there are people that do that. There are people who use like moving averages for entries and then Fibonacci for adding to positions. And it's all very complicated and probably overfitted in my opinion. So there we go. So the question is, is it worth doing this as well? Right? Because we talk about it, you know, as if it's just an accepted truth. So I've actually tested it and, and I have found that that it does seem to add value to your trend following system. And the value it adds is about a third. So say, for example, you're expecting to make 15% a year, it would increase your expected return to about 20% a year, which, you know, is, is a pretty good rate. There's not many things you can do that can give you that kind of improvement. Now, the, the disadvantage of doing it um, is it does mean it's going to increase the amount of capital you need to an extent as a smaller trader, because, um, you, you know, you, you, you can't just trade one lot all the time, one lot, one lot, one lot. You to get the most out of it, you need to be in a position where you need to hold three or four lots, say, for your maximum position and be able to scale in and out with that. So, yeah, um, I mean, I could say to Adam, we'll just use the system I use, which is this idea of an expected forecast. But um, a simple way of doing that would be to um, just look at um, his say, trend signal and look at how strong that is and basically just as that changes, adjust his position effectively. So. What's kind of an average trend signal for you, Adam? Quantify that and then say, well, let, let us keep it really simple. Suppose you decide, well, my average position I want to hold is four contracts. Okay, well, my average trend is at, is at that level, then I'll have a four contract position. If it's only half that level, I'll have a two contract position and so on and so forth. And that will give you a very easy way of just scaling in and scaling out of positions as strengths, as trends strengthen or weaken. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's a great way of looking at it. Of course, uh, as you, Adam, already uh, talked about, there are other ways such as having multiple entry points to build up your full position based on just different time frames, really. And since you've listened to all of the episodes, Adam, you will remember from episode 120 and 121 when I described more detailed um, how uh, my little trend-following model does it. That is kind of along the lines of what Rob is doing, but different. Because I do it probably even more simply because I've simply chosen a few different types of trend following methodologies and they each have their own risk budget, so to speak. So I just have to track, you know, for every entry I get using, say, model number one, then there will be an exit just like any other trend following system and so on and so forth. But I also know that if model number th one, two, three and four are all engaged, then I know what my total risk is. And there'll be four different types of exits as well. So I feel I have a good level of diversification as, as well, uh, not just based on time frame, but actually what I think is how some people would put together a little trading team of trend followers using different types of trend followers. So some of them are classic trenders. I talk about group one. I talk about group two more kind of uh, what I think discretionary traders would be like, meaning they're a little bit slower to get in, but they're super fast to get out because they get scared. So that you can build that into your your uh, entries and exit algorithms. And then these um, this fast reacting uh, kind of plunge protection team that trades just a few markets. But if, if, if something really goes wrong in the world, and you probably will see a big reaction in fixed income and equity markets, and that's what they're there for, uh, to help me mitigate some of the losses that may occur elsewhere based on much um, different types of and more looser uh, stops. 
So great question. Thanks for that, Adam. We're going to scoot on to the next one from Brendan. Uh, unless you, I mean, do you want to comment on that or not? No, I just, no, just no. to say very quickly, I think the main difference between the two approaches is, and it's not that significant, is that I combine different signals, different things at a signal level. Yeah. Whereas you're, you're, you're basically having, you're in, each of your little systems has got its own position, its own, yeah. position and its own trades. Whereas I combine everything together so that there's a common position and a common trade. But to be honest, the two approaches will probably produce similar results. It's just just a question of what, what you prefer and what you find easy to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. Next question is, as I mentioned, a little bit of a crypto question. And it was originally, I think, meant uh, for Moritz. But actually, Moritz is going to be out next week. So he won't be back until December. And I didn't want to leave it that long for you, Brendan. So since we have our new found crypto expert in the room today, he will be most likely very capable of answering this question. And so the question is, if you want to broaden the question to all cash settle undeliverable futures contracts, then it may be interesting conversation for everyone. I realize that this may be a bit fundamental of a question about how futures contracts work, but I'm still learning and please forgive my ignorance. No need to apologize here, Brendan. Question is, do Bitcoin cash settled futures contracts create synthetic Bitcoin supply? I ask because, in my opinion, Bitcoin's value add is directly related to its scarcity. The market on CME provides an opportunity for speculators and hedgers who would normally buy or sell spot Bitcoin directly affecting its supply to gain exposure without affecting supply. Hmm. Yeah. Definitely don't apologize for asking because that's actually quite a deep question. It's not, it's, not a, it's not like a basic question at all. That's very, very philosophical. Okay, so if you think about a cash settled future, and let's let's just abstract away from, from Bitcoin. So any like euro, dollar, S&P 500, all of these things that are cash settled. Um, now, what happens when, when you go to the market and buy a cash settled future? And the answer is it depends on who is selling it to you. So if the person selling it to you is a um, like a quote-unquote professional trader, then what they will probably do is sell you that future and then simultaneously hedge their exposure in the cash market, in the underlying market. So if it's Bitcoin, then you, know, you go and buy your Bitcoin future from this you know, so-called professional. They, they will then hedge their exposure because they are now short Bitcoin by going... Um, long in the cash markets. So they will go and get themselves some physical Bitcoin from somewhere. And the same applies to S&P 500. You can just go and buy something. Well, you could buy the SPY ETF, which is very cheap, or you could buy a basket of, of S&P 500 shares that you know that you think gives you a close enough hedge. And this is the kind of business that's done not so much with Bitcoin, but certainly with the S&P 500 is done by, you know, big firms like DSHOW and Citadel, and it's all automated and it's all, you know, low latency and super efficient. And they make tiny, tiny fractions of basis points on the on these trades. Um, now, what that's so that's one thing that could happen. And, and what happens, however, if you buy the Bitcoin future from someone else who's like you, hasn't hedged and actually does want to take on the opposite side of exposure. So let's say that, Niels, I've, I've gone and bought the Bitcoin future in the market and you sold it to me, but you haven't hedged because you want to go short Bitcoin. Um, you know, you're just, just another 
quote unquote speculator like me. Now, what that trade between the two of us has had no impact whatsoever, no direct impact on the actual underlying Bitcoin market. It's be you know, there's not there doesn't have to be a connection between the two. The only connection, obviously, is at expiry when the the thing that we tra our trade will settle on whatever the the value of cash Bitcoin is at the closing price. And I I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly how the what the settlement period is and the calculations for Bitcoin, so I'm not going to go into it. But broadly speaking, mo most futures work the same way. On the settlement day, a price is calculated over some average period, and that's used as a settlement price, and that's the basis on which the the cash settlement is made, and then obviously there'll be a, a pay, payment between the two of us on that day. Now, I would argue, well, it's my expectation, that if you say take the S&P 500 future, the vast majority of trading that's going on there will be going back into the cash market. And so the link between the two markets is going to remain very, you know, there's going to be almost no opportunity for, for example, for arbitrage between them because it's going to be very closely linked. Most of the trades going on there, on in there are going to be Quite a large proportion going to be effectively hedged out in the cash market. I'm not so sure the same is true of Bitcoin. I think that quite a, as as um, I've forgotten the questioner's name. Brendan, oh, it's from it's from Brendan. Brent, Brendan, as Brendan says, um, I think it's quite likely that there are lots of people trading Bitcoin on the futures market because they don't want to be involved in the underlying market. And we've already talked about ETFs, right? So. Right. You know, pe people who um, are, are selling ETFs and then have to hedge their exposure are going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin futures. So they're, they're you know, they're um, they're kind of pr professional investors, if you like. They're hedging an exposure they have, um, but they are doing it in the futures market, not the, the cash market, because they don't want to get involved in the cash market at all. So I, I think um, it's quite likely that a lot of people trading Bitcoin futures who may even be, and it may even be there's actually a higher quite a high proportion of institutions in the uh, Bitcoin futures market because they don't want to get involved in the Bitcoin cash market because of all the, the dangers we talked about. So it might be there is much less of a connection in the, between the, um, the derivative and the cash instrument in Bitcoin than there is in more developed uh, market, you know, markets. And that's why we can see these things that Moritz has talked about in the past. So um, I will channel Moritz for a second, which is these opportunities for, you know, effectively for for free money for arbitrage because of the disconnection between these two markets has just has created these big spreads between um you know the, the cash market and the futures market which people people who are willing and able to take on that exposure can can therefore earn you know i think he was earning on some of these trades sort of 10 or 15 percent annualized return which risk-free i mean risk-free if you abstract away from the settlement risk and the counterparty risk but still so yeah in a sense, Bitcoin is a weird market like that. Now, in, in many ways, actually, it's more similar to another weird market, which is the interest rate futures market, because there's all this hedging and stuff going on in the interest rate futures market. But people, generally speaking, um, aren't hedging against you know, direct exposure to whatever LIBOR is going to be in three years. They're hedging something else. They're hedging a long bond portfolio or something like that. So the actual LIBOR measure itself which of course is going to be replaced um, quite soon with a new measure. And um, we won't go into the details now because that's a very long and boring discussion. There is a, a bit of a connection between those two things, but it's it's not as obvious as it is in, say, the S&P 500, where it's there's a direct connection between the index that you're trading and the stocks you can trade in the cash market. So, so again, that's a market where 
a lot of it's people trading with each other, betting on the price of a number rather than necessarily a connection to a direct physical market. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, and great question, Brenton. And uh, keep up the great work that you're doing to uh, get familiar with trend following. Now, you brought along a few topics, interesting ones, some of them a little bit um, outside what we normally talk about to some extent, like the first one, which of course is very topical, right? Yeah. We have at the moment the big uh, climate conference, COP26, going on in, uh, in Scotland, in Glasgow, and you wanted to bring up a topic in terms of how should futures traders respond to the climate crisis. So I'm interesting as to where we're going with this one i mean i think the the cold cop thing is something i've become much more aware of this year because it has been held in our country as obviously the environment's become a more pressing and well-known issue over the last few years so my wife's actually very very green person she's actually stood as a, a candidate in elections for the green party in, in here in the uk so um you know she's she's very much um always pushing me to think about these things we have we have an electric car we have a passive uh, solar heated pump and we try and recycle and you know we, we try and do all the usual things we're trying to fly less you know covid was a big help with that uh, <laughs> obviously <laughs> but um that i always feel like in in what we do as futures traders are we good or bad for the environment um and this in many ways this is a, you know quite a deep philosophical question really because obviously i i trade crude oil futures i trade heating oil I don't trade carbon credits, but um, I'm I'm looking at them. I think there might be might be enough liquidity there, um, and I think that's a market whose liquidity will increase. And I also trade things like, for example, palm oil, which you know, I have. I don't trade it now, but uh, in the past, you know, we traded it. Uh, AHL. So it's like, well, okay, is is the fact that we are adding liquidity to this market and facilitating the trading of crude oil is that you know making it worse? Is that making the situation worse? Or does it depend on the sign of position you have? So, for example, you know, if you're if you're buying crude oil futures and increasing the price, okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because okay, on, it may seem on the face of it like a like a bad thing because you're making you know crude oil more expensive. But actually, no, maybe if crude oil goes up enough, then enough people will switch away to other power sources and into you know renewable energy, which is great. So maybe we should be only buying crude oil futures. Um, you know, um, um, but on the other hand. You know, if the price of crude oil gets driven down to zero, then then that's really going to screw over Saudi Arabia and Russia and you know the the U.S. oil companies. And that, isn't that a good thing? So, it, maybe the fact that that it's there's no obvious answer is is a good thing, and it means that actually we're we're, we're kind of neutral, in a sense. But I don't know. I it's something I've thought about and struggled with, and not not really got anywhere. I think if there was a very strong case that that what we were doing was bad for the environment, I would stop doing it. I mean, actually, Bitcoin. For example, you know, the gen, you know, one of the reasons I don't like Bitcoin is it has a very obvious and very high environmental cost. But on the other hand, the, the fact that I'm trading Bitcoin futures, sometimes long and sometimes short, I don't feel that's as obviously bad for the environment. You know, I don't know. So this is a question from me to you, Niels, really, because I've thought about it and not really got anywhere. But I wondered if you had any thoughts. 
Well, I mean, I think it ties in with ESG, even though ESG is broader than just climate, right? And um, I think you're right. I think it's very difficult to say. I mean, I'm sure there will be some much brighter people who can point to a direct, you know, cause and effect uh, trading, you know, being a CTA and 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 doing good or bad for the climate. I, I just don't know what that might be. But I think because we um, are so um, kind of... Um, what is the word I'm looking for here? We don't have a view, let's put it that way, in terms of market direction. And we're agnostic is the word I was looking for in terms of that. I, I don't think you can say that there, I think it's harder to say there is a direct negative or positive effect. But of course, once you get into some of the very, very specific markets that may be much more impacted by certain things, such as, I'm just, again, uh, thinking uh, on my feet here, but let's just take lumber prices right i mean now deforesting uh, they want to cap that uh, in 2030 or whatever it might be is that linked in any way shape or form to the price of lumber i, I have no idea but maybe it is so i i think we all have to be concerned uh, with the environment of course and 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 make sure we leave uh, the planet in in as good a shape as we can for our children and grandchildren I think with ESG, this is where I've been a little bit more vocal because I think there's other things than climate that is somewhat problematic maybe for us as futures traders. And that's more kind of some of the countries that our peer groups have started to trade in, uh, in countries where I think it's fair to say that there isn't very good standards for how to treat people and employ uh, employees and and social justice and all of that stuff. This is where I found, um, and I have to be careful because I, you know, a lot of these, you know, some of these people who trade this have been guests on the podcast. I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but I'm just saying I think it's harder for me to see people on that on one hand spend a lot of time telling how ESG compliant they are, but on the other hand, they trade things like Chinese commodities where. I do think we have to question how things are done in countries like that. And also, I've, this is just a kind of a general observation. I find it interesting, and I don't agree with it, I guess, that we are very vocal in terms of uh, our fears and how we should be, um, um, you know, you know the, the fears we have for, for China to be to be very direct about it. But at the same time, it's really the Western world that, to a large degree, finance everything that goes on in China, um, Wall Street firms and and so on and so forth. So I, I just find that's kind of weird uh, that we kind of help them become our biggest competitor and adversary, uh, really. So, yeah, so for me, maybe it's easier to, to think about this um, in a broader context, but I do think that... I do think we have a responsibility toward the climate, for sure. Yeah, I was actually just looking at my risk report, and interestingly, at the moment, I'm only trading the China equities, and for some reason, I'm I'm long the H shares and short the A shares, almost exactly balanced. So my net position in China is, is zero. <laughs> China neutral at I'm the moment. China neutral, so I have no no opinion on China. So, but do you agree with that? Do you agree? I mean, do you agree that it's kind of and now since you're trading China shares, I mean, yeah. you know, um, I can put it to you. Do you feel that that's a good thing if you think about um, maybe how some of these companies that you trade treat the employees? I mean, I'm trading S&P 500 as, and, and that includes 
you know, probably some firms right. who I would have a problem with. Um, I wouldn't necessarily buy, you know, as part of a discretionary right. portfolio, I wouldn't necessarily go out and buy their shares directly. I mean, I don't have any. So, for example, I don't have, I don't own any any um, mining or energy companies. Um, oh, you know, dirty energy companies in my individual stock trading portfolio. That that's a decision I took to exclude those. Um, but on the other hand, I you know, I trade the DJ Stocks 500 index. I trade the S and P 500. I trade the S and P 400. All of these indices will have exposure to those dirty companies. Um, so you know, so oh, it's a it's it's a really you know do do you exclude the whole index because a certain proportion of you know or do you say well let's even we don't even need to go to China let's go to say Canada or Australia where a high proportion of the the you know the equities in the in the flagship index are in kind of di- dirty mining or you know resource industries because that's the kind of you know that their their com- countries are quite exposed to those should I exclude them on that basis it's a really I mean, I, this is the first time I actually had this discussion was was back when I was working at AHL. And it was actually related to palm oil. And there was a documentary about palm oil on television. And my wife turned to me and said, "Do you do you have anything to do with palm oil?" And I'm like, "And actually, no." When in the next morning, because I wasn't running the um, AGS portfolios, running the fixed income portfolio, had up the market list, and there was palm oil. And I said to, him, to him, the CEO, "Well, you know, should we stop trading palm oil?" And he and he and he's he's like, "Well, we have this." discussion every now and then but the, the question is where do you draw the line it's very it's almost everything that, that we try almost everything we trade you could make a case as to why you shouldn't trade it on on some grounds right so it was really your wife that made you re- retire from ahl I now understand. <laughs> it was the palm oil well she she uh, yeah I, I yeah she certainly um pr- probably but you know uh, what this is interesting, right? I mean, and again, we're completely deviating from 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 kind of what we plan to talk about, I guess. But but that's another thing, you know. We 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 keep saying, oh yeah, we shouldn't invest in 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 sort of the, these gas and oil companies, et cetera, et cetera. And you could say there are two just two things to that, right? On one hand, you could say, well, first of all, we see now the effect of maybe having underinvested in some of those things until the green kind of sources of energy you know um that they're, they're, they're ready right um because it has become incredibly expensive this year to heat up your house or fill your your tank because of shortages and most likely because of underinvestment in some of these things because it's been banned from many portfolios to be exposed to so that's one thing the other thing you could say and i know this is probably easier to answer but if someone gives you money to manage, isn't your job to make the best possible return for that client? And if the best possible return includes um, not just a green company, so to speak, you know, who, who, who do you answer to? So to, unless you make a specific kind of proposal saying, I'm only going to invest in green. But if you're, but if, for example, a lot of people who have pensions, they don't have that choice, right? It's the pension. They have no say about who looks after the pension and what happens to it. But they certainly expect that whoever's looking after it will do whatever they can to give them the best opportunity to having a, a good amount of um, money at retirement. And and so are they meant to sit and, and possibly make inferior investments because of these things? I mean, this is where I think it's so difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think in that specific example, it, 
it's bad that people don't have a choice, right? Because you somebody should have a choice. Yeah. Invest in the pension. Do you want to invest it in in you know? And you can almost think of it as a spectrum from completely green when you only invest in in companies that have very clear positive impacts on the environment. So you know, renewable energy and so on, all the way to um, actually, some people call them sin portfolios, where you consciously go out of your way to invest in in, in things that are perceived as bad because you believe that actually you'll earn a higher risk premium because the rest of the market's undervaluing them. People should have a choice about where they and 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 it should be transparent where they are on that thing, and it shouldn't be a box ticking exercise. So someone who genuinely wants ESG should be able to buy an ESG fund that's not just a box ticking exercise. Because some of these ESG funds in, invest in companies, and you look at them and you think, what? <laughs> I mean, really? That you're saying that this firm is ESG? I don't. I don't think so. Just because they've gone through some box ticking exercise. Um, so I think yeah, choice and transparency uh, are the order of the day. Because ultimately, if if someone is happy to accept a slightly lower return for a greener portfolio, they should be able to have that choice as long as they know what that's what that what they're doing. Similarly, if if someone believes they'll get a higher return through a green portfolio, they should be able to make that choice. Um, if some, but if somebody says, you know what, just completely unconstrained just go for it i don't care i want you to make the most money for me possible then they should be again allowed allowed to make that choice definitely yeah and of course now we have this uh, term greenflation which is um something that we've certainly seen uh this um this autumn and going into the winter anyways for now let's leave climate change to the people in glasgow uh or the climate crisis and move to Something uh, which is somewhat related, actually, um, I guess, you, because you wrote about, um, you know, choosing which markets to trade, contract size, markets excluded by regulation, markets that aren't liquid enough. So some thoughts about that, um, most likely sparked by some of the questions we get uh, on a regular basis. So let's not spend too much time on it because we do have this hard stop uh, today. But but I certainly would like to uh, hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a useful topic. Yeah, so th this is something that that um, I mean, it sort of mostly applies to retail investors like me who've got smaller smaller portfolios and therefore have a much more limited choice of which contracts they can trade. But it does also apply to institutional traders as well. Um, so one of the things I've been doing over the last few months um, is looking at all you know virtually all the futures contracts I can get data from potentially trade um, and deciding you know w which of them to actually trade. Um, and trying to do that in a, in a, in a relatively rigorous and, and systematic way as well, because that, that's the kind of guy I am, right? <laughs> um, so, um, and, and also, and I'll talk about this in a second, but, but basically um, it's possible there are markets for which I want to collect data and potentially generate signals for, but not actually take positions in. So you can kind of think of there being sort of three classes of markets out there. Um, ones where, you know, I, for whatever reason, I, I don't want to get involved in at all, so I don't want to pull. I can't. Maybe the data is too expensive, for example, or something like that. Um, then there are markets where I'm I want to pull in the data um, and process signals on them. Maybe, maybe for for optimization purposes. Maybe, maybe just just for interest sake. So, I mean, I'm writing this new book that will include analysis of a lot of different futures markets, for example. Uh, but I don't actually want to take positions in them. And then finally, we've got the the markets that I I really do want to take positions in, and the the sort of a specific subset of this problem, which is the following: in a lot of cases, you have a multiple way of of actually trading a particular market. So, for example, if you take the S and P, um, there are three different contracts you can trade um, on the CME. Right, you can trade the big contract, 
which I don't think anyone trades anymore actually because it, it's it's you know it's got it's got a very big contract size. You can trade the the e mini, which is the it's been around a long time now. Most people that's their go to market for trading S and P. Or you can trade the micro contract, which I think has been around for a couple of years now, something like Sounds that. Sounds about right. Yeah, um, which has got the you know the lowest exposure, um, and um, you know. The same is true of Bitcoin. When Bitcoin was first launched, it was a huge, it was a big contract. It was um, five five bitcoins worth. So now that would be what three hundred thousand dollars contract size, which is huge. Um, and the, there's now a, a, a micro Bitcoin, which is zero point one, I think. And soon to be ETH. Micro, e yeah, by the ETH. Because yeah, because yeah, ETH is a big contract as well. Ethereum is a big contract. The micro Bitcoin contract is uh, just one tenth. So that that's got a value now of about six thousand dollars you know much more reasonable so the the, the question is which, which of these things should you trade because there are a lot of different different uh, markets and i last time i checked i counted about 25 different markets where there were these different size contracts available and also in some cases there are multiple exchanges where you can trade so for example um some of the um like things like say the, the uh, yen dollar rate you can trade it in the us but you can also trade it in singapore potentially so the question is, you know, which, which of these things do you choose? What's a sort of systematic way of, of choosing between these things? So I, I've, I spent some time thinking about this, and I'm going to give you my own individual set of rules that I've come up with. And Niels, maybe you can give me some feedback and see what you think, and uh, maybe some listeners can chip in with, with their own ideas as well. So the first thing, obviously, is when we're trading, we want to be trading something that's liquid. So it's no good having a market that, that doesn't, the trades what are like one contract a day because you know you, it's just even if you're you know going to hold that contract for a long time you know you you want to be able to get in and out relatively easily without you know having to pay huge bid ask spread or we'll talk about costs as well in a second that's a separate issue so in terms of liquidity I, I i came with a couple of different ways of measuring it the most basic thing is to say well it has to trade a certain number of contracts a day and i said well you know what if it's less than 100 contracts a day that's not enough for me. You know, that, that, that's just, just, just not enough. And you may think, well, that doesn't sound like very much. Surely there can't be many, many um, futures markets out there that, that, that trade less than, uh, you know, 100 contracts a day. Um, but, but actually, um, there, there are. And um, one of the things I've done, actually, is, is create a little report that, that reports to me um, all, the, all the contracts I'm tracking these kinds of numbers. So, for example, Let's take aluminium. Do you know what the average trading volume in aluminium was um, over the last few weeks? Have a guess. Do you mean the LME or no the the no. Um, the US aluminium? Yeah, right. So probably I would imagine that's low because yeah. I would imagine that most of the stuff is traded on, on the, the LME, LME. exactly. Yeah. Which I don't I don't trade on the LME, so I haven't got access to that. Yeah. So have a guess. Go on, Nils. Have a guess. Uh, so the daily volume, um, I don't know, twenty-two contracts, four contracts. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's quite there's quite a few. I've got a few, you know. So the other ones that are very low are um, the Korean one US dollar FX rate, uh, dry milk. Um, yeah, milk is. Yeah, yeah. it's um, like in the forties, isn't it? Like yeah, it's in the forties. Um, yeah. Closer to home, the the Noki dollar exchange rate is also uh, pretty low. Uh, and cheese, cheese just makes it above hundred. Cheese is hundred and five at the moment. So you know you can have milk, you can have cheese, but not milk with your lunch right. today. Um, so that, that was the first measure of, of liquidity. But then I also thought, well, you know what? That's quite crude. 
um, because different contract sizes, different risks, and so on and so forth. So the other thing I I did, which I like to do a lot, is to basically say, well, what's the daily volume equivalent to in terms of annualized risk? Because we, you know, we, we volatility scale our positions, you know, what we need to know um, what the um, you know what that actually equates to in risk. Because it might be that something trades a hundred thousand contracts a day, but because the contract size is extremely small, to take a decent sized position. And maybe because the volatility is very low, to take a decent sized mm. position, you might need to buy ten percent of that. You know, it's way too, way too much. So um, on on that, I, I basically did did my calculations, and again, I've got a little report that produces this every day. Um, and I'm also trying to find a way of actually publishing these reports on the internet so that people can see them and just go and go and look at them, so they kind of get the information for free as well, which I think would be a nice resource. Um, and I said, well, you know what? If something trades less than one and a half million dollars of equivalent annualized risk a day. That's that's too low for me. Um, so just to give you an indication of, of that, if we go to the other end of the spectrum, um, the annualized risk in the S and P five hundred uh, e mini contract is um, fifteen billion dollars a day. So that okay, that that's kind of a thousand times above the, the kind of minimum. That that's the the most liquid contract on that measure that I'm currently tracking. Um, so uh, it probably is the most liquid in the world, pretty much, I guess. Um, so we've got some familiar names at the other end of the spectrum there, but also some some other other ones that that just fall under that one and a half million dollar rate as well. So this one and a half million dollar um, limit is a bit more of a hard hard one. It throws out about a dozen contracts. Um, so for example, Rice joins Milk in the uh, in the naughty on the naughty step, if you like, um, and um, the. Um, Singapore dollar, US dollar is another one. These these kind of emerging market or less, you know, popular currency IMM yeah. don't tend to trade very much. So that's the first thing, liquidity. So let's assume we, the contract passes the liquidity value. The, the next thing we need to check, which is related to liquidity but not exactly the same, is costs. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to be trading something that's too expensive. And now the way I set my system up is if something's really cheap, I can trade it a bit quicker. If something's really slow, I can trade it a bit slower. But there are kind of limits as to how slow I want to trade something. And the other thing is, even if you, you know, only trade once a year, you still got to roll your contracts as they expire every every month or every quarter. Um, so you 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 know, you're still going to be if something's really expensive to trade, it's going to cost you money just to have a position just sitting there being rolled, you know, every every quarter. So you still need to consider the costs. So there's kind of an upper limit for me on on trading costs. Um, and basically, what the way I I think of this is I calculate the costs again, risk normalized, which means they're basically like a sharp ratio basis point, effectively. So um I have a um a hard limit again, which of which is I don't want to spend more than one sharp ratio basis point per trade. So for example, that means if you've got a quarterly contract that's rolling four times a year and you're also trading it pretty slowly and only trading it four times a year, you're going to be spending um eight basis points of sharp ratio on 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 trading that. And if you Can think, you just explain when you say eight basis point sharp ratio. I yeah, yeah. So, so for example, that. let's suppose your risk target is twenty percent a year. That that means you'd be spending eight um, percent of that, um, which is one point six percent a year. You'd be spending one point six percent a year on costs, which for me feels a bit high. So my, mm. you know, we're, we're slow. You know, we're we're sort of slowish trend followers, right? We we you know, I don't know about you, but I I'm, I look to make about twenty twenty five percent a year gross. 
and spend maybe about one percent of that on commissions mm. and slippage, roughly. Sounds speaking. about right. Yeah. yeah. So you know that 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 for me feels about the right measure. So anyway, so I, I came with this hard stop of of um, of one basis point um, in sharp ratio terms in in uh, in costs, and um, the you know again there are a few markets there that that kind of miss the cut, and um, these are more likely to be markets you've heard of, to be honest. Um, rather than the more obscure, you know, uh, currencies and milk and so on and so forth. Um, and a lot of them tend to be, for example, um, either interest rate futures or short-term bonds because they're so very low volatility. You know, that means that risk adjusted their cost. That was before high. last week they were low yeah, volatility. Exactly. No longer. No longer. Exactly. Um, so actually, the um, there are a couple of familiar names in there. So milk um, is coming in at seven basis points. That's way above the limit. Um, you know, cheese uh, and rice also coming in at a couple of basis points. That's a bit high. Um, the there's um, a U.S. Um, contract on the five-year interest rate swap rate, so that's a fixed income market. That's four basis points. That's that's coming in a bit high. So uh, closer to home, the the two-year German bond future, the Schatz, that that comes in about one point one basis points. That's just above my left. So I'm not mm. I'm not happy trading the Schatz at the moment with that level. And the, interestingly, euro dollar sneaks in just another one basis point at the moment. So, so that that's a market you'd think of as being very very liquid, which it is. It's got huge liquidity, yeah. but actually, because the volatility is quite low, it's actually quite expensive to trade. So, you know, it's not necessarily the um, the, the best option. Okay, so we've done costs, we've done liquidity, and the the other thing we need to think about is is um, is, is the the contract size as well, sure. which we kind of discussed, right? So. Um, and that's particularly true if we go back to the the example I said of well let's suppose you've got different ways of trading the same thing like the S and P five hundred. So what's the process you actually go through in terms of choosing which of these things to trade? Well, what you do is basically you first of all you apply these different filters. So you say well are all of these S and P five hundred contracts you know equally good? You know do they all do they pass all these filters? And for something like the S and P five hundred, at the moment, yes they all actually pass. These these filters, I mean, they're all very liquid and so on and so forth. They're quite cheap to trade, and actually, interestingly, the 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 uh, the costs for these three things come in almost exactly the same, which is kind of is quite nice in a way. It means that the the contract multiplier is sort of is is work is doing is working in in a, in a way that means that on a risk adjusted basis, each of these things is a, is equally good. Now, that's not always going to be the case because it might be that. You know, and this is true in some of the metals. The mini, the mini contracts just aren't traded that much, so that they won't meet the liquidity thresholds. Mm. So you throw them out already, and you have to stick to to the bigger contracts. Um, but then the choice is clear for the S and P five hundred. You you want to trade the smaller contract because that gives you as a as a smaller retail trader an opportunity to actually hold a few of those things, mm. which for the big contract you couldn't necessarily do. And also going back to the earlier question we had means you've got the opportunity then to scale into your positions more accurately as well and vol scale your positions more accurately. So yeah, that, that that's the the kind of system I've come up with. Now we can have an argument about the exact numbers that I've come up with. And in particular for institutional traders, you know, one and a half million dollars of risk may be too low. You know, 100 contracts a day may be too low. Um, and, um, you know, you, you, or you could be more aggressive on the costs and say, well, you know, Rob, I'm willing to spend more than one at this point. But I think as a general framework, it's quite a nice way of thinking about market selection. I think it's pretty good. And, uh, you know, if, if you make some of this stuff um, 
available for people. I think that's a huge uh, help. I think it's one of those things that takes actually quite a lot of experience to come down to to be able to to really sort of uh, narrow down what to look at because I think it's tempting to just look at volume and people and and then look up uh, you know speak to your broker and say oh yeah that's six dollar per round turn or whatever the number is but not thinking it through not thinking through how many contracts you actually would trade in a market like that that's obviously also quite important so I thought it was pretty good yeah and um, so I think this is uh, super useful now the next topic we need to uh, talk about there's a couple of there's we've got a few left I might change the order a little bit because one of them you wrote in brackets this could be a long discussion so I'm not sure we're going to get to that one we could keep that for next month but let's tackle a couple of questions that came in from Michael on Twitter um these were questions uh relating to single stocks at least the first one was um Michael writes Jerry recommends adding single stock to your portfolio what do you, and that must be you, Rob, what do you see are the reasons to do so and what are the reasons not to do so? Okay. That, that's, I love that kind of question. It's very, very simple, very simple, very well worded, actually. Okay. So reasons to add single stocks to your portfolio. Well, the, the, the reason is the same reason you add any market to your portfolio, really, which is, I would say, diversification. So we talked about this earlier. You know, we, we trade the, the indices you know, the S&P 500 index, the FTSE 100, the, the Eurostock 600. That means we're, we're kind of getting a big blob of equity exposure in, all in one go to all these different companies um, in with particular weightings. We're not given the opportunities to, to say to sort of dive inside that index and say, well, you know what? I want to be long the S&P 500, but actually I want to be short Tesla because, you know, that that's that's going down, for example. I don't know if it is going down. It's, on the, it's probably a bad example. It's been a few right? years ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's unlikely that Tesla's been going down recently. Um, but you you know, you might say I want to go down, you know, short a particular stock in the index, but long others. So you wanna you, you know, and if you can do that, um, you should in theory be able to generate additional return because you know diversification is is the best free lunch in financial markets. Um, and we're lucky as futures traders that we can get the sort of the best kind of diversification, which is across lots of different asset classes and as you know, all these wild and wacky things we've been talking about re- you know, the last few minutes. Um, but, but, um, you know, it's also good to get diversification within asset classes and within, mm-hmm. um, equity indices. Um, and, you know, as long as the things you're, you're trading aren't kind of a hundred percent correlated, you will get some diversification benefit. Now, the benefit will not be quite as big as it is, is diversifying across asset classes because, you know, asset classes are relatively uncorrelated. Whereas the stocks in the S and P five hundred are relatively correlated. I mean, the average correlation between them is probably something like six point seven, maybe. I don't know. Um, so the benefit's not as big as it as it would be, you know, to trade across asset classes, at least in theory. But there's definitely still a benefit there, absolutely. Um, now, every time we have this discussion about diversification, I kind of point out that I I don't really believe that there are particular places where you can find better trends than other places. I don't believe. You know, that's the argument, for example, for, for going into non-traditional CTA assets. I believe it's, it's all about diversification, about getting, you know, less correlated assets into your portfolio. So I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't believe that, that stocks trend better than futures, for example. I don't believe that's mm. the reason to add them to your portfolio. Um, and in fact, there may be some evidence that the opposite is true, that the that, that trend following in particular 
is not quite as effective at the single stock level as it is at the the index level. Um, and that the reason being that, that the the individual stocks sort of tend to mean mean revert more around the kind of sort of global trend that the the asset's taking. And there's evidence for that if you look at the way that country indices work versus, say, trend following an aggregate of those like the MSCI world or some synthetic average. So, so um, you know, I wouldn't say you should go kind of not trade stocks because they don't trend. Maybe there's a bit of evidence for that. But I'm, I'm certainly saying you shouldn't trade stocks only because you believe there are better trends in mm. there. I don't believe that's true. Definitely not. So that's all the positive stuff and a little bit of the negative. The reasons why you shouldn't is, well, it's difficult. It's mm. hard. <laughs> and it's hard for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, is that stocks are not futures. Futures are have one annoying thing, which is that you have to keep rolling them, which we've already discussed. And that gives you complexity in, in how you build your, your trading system. Um, but in m- many ways, they're, they're really quite simple. So stocks, stocks do annoying things like, you know, they, they change their names. They, they change their tickers. They merge with other stocks. They, they issue, you know, um, script dividends, which are dividends in the form of stock. They do stock splits. They, you know, they, they do all these crazy things. And that means that the, the kind of infrastructure and complexity of managing a stock portfolio is many orders of magnitude greater than it, it is for futures. And um, this is particularly true for someone like me who trades in a fully automated way, because all of these things have to be managed auto- in an automatic way. Um, and uh, you know, when I was working, uh, I did some spent some time inside um, a little stock fund that HL was running early in my career. And um, you know, it was it was my job as as the intern at the time to spend quite a lot of time on this gr- this grunt work of getting all of these little things to work. So, you know, I, I speak from painful experience. That's the the first reason why um, you know stocks are different from futures. The second reason is, and this applies more to to retail than to institutional traders. It comes back to what what I was saying earlier in terms of you know being able to diversify. Well, the the, the diversification is wonderful, but you need money to do it, right? You need more. The more things you're going to trade, the more capital you're going to need, right? The question you should ask yourself as someone who's not got a you know a five hundred million dollar portfolio, say or whatever is to say, well, is it really a good use of my money to take the money, the, the risk capital I've currently allocated to, say, the S&P 500, and to instead use that risk capital tool to trade, or maybe maybe not all 500 stocks, but a, but a, you know, a decent subset of that, of that market, say 50 stocks. And on each of those 50 stocks, you're going to need enough capital to trade those guys. Now, the good news is that, that unlike futures, the amount of capital required to trade an individual stock is pretty low. You know, it's it's pretty it's pretty small and actually with some brokers you can now get fractional share ownership. Um, although I would maybe stay away from those brokers. Brokers named after Oh, like, but it's free, Rob. It's free, exactly. Yeah. Brokers named after mythical um people in English legend who wore green suits and you know were, were related we to took from the rich and gave to the poor. Yeah, exactly. Is that what you're referring to? We're not gonna name the broker, obviously. Of course not. Of course not. But brokers like that, they know there are potential downsides with them and potential downsides with fractional share ownership. But even at a kind of decent broker, you can trade shares with quite quite small amounts of money, which is which is good. But so the question is we you say, well, what's the benefit I'm gonna get from say taking the risk capital I've allocated to say SP five hundred, allocating it to, to 50 individual stocks? You'll get a benefit, but it's not going to be massive um and it's you know in an institution it's different where you know you like you want as much to you can get you once you're trading 150 futures it's very logical to then 
if you've got the, the you know the uh, the infrastructure, you can build infrastructure to say, well, I now want to trade stocks as well. Absolutely, that's fine. Um, but for a you know for a smaller trader, it probably makes less sense to do that splitting of risk capital with the associated amount of work I've talked about, which is substantial. You know, the benefits you're going to see are going to be pretty small. Yeah, no, I think that that's actually a really good way of uh, looking at it. I would just add one more thing. These are very simple things, actually. And that is, of course, the other one other benefit is what we've seen and we've heard Jerry talk about is the fact that this time around, he was able to find some of those outliers which we're so that we're hunting for, like a Moderna, like a Tesla. And that's been fantastic. But had, as that he, he also shared with us during the COVID crisis last year, that suddenly the correlations changed, uh, you know, probably maybe a little bit more than what was expected. So he reduced his allocation to uh, to single stocks. And thirdly, I would just say that there is, of course, this risk uh, that if you can't trade the full 500 shares, right, um, th then you do you will see from time to time, just as much as you will see these massive move to the upside, but sometime on a on a missed earnings quarter or whatever, you're going to see some of these stocks lose 25, 30, 50% in a day. I mean, and then you can start talk, talking about slippage and all sorts of other things. So there are a little bit, that you know, so these are just things that I would also take into consideration. Um, but let's finish the question from Michael. And let's see then once we've done that, whether we have time for one more topic or whether this is the time where we have to start winding down. Um, Michael also asked, um, what do you come up with, uh, or how, sorry, not what, how do you come up with new ideas? So um, how do you come up with new ideas, Rob? Yeah, I, I hate other than Other than speaking to all of us well, exactly. um, on the podcast. Well, I, yes. in all seriousness, though, it's, it's um, I don't know about you, but I find it very difficult to say where a particular idea came from, right? So I'm, I'm always doing or trying to do a lot of things, right? So I'm always trying to read uh, both books and stuff on the internet. Obviously, um, you know, I talk to you guys on the podcast. I listen to the past episodes of the podcast. There are other podcasts I follow. Um, I've recently, I go to conferences. You, I'm usually, I'm invited to speak at conferences, but I like listening to other people as well. Actually, in the last uh, month since we last spoke, I've actually been, physically been to two conferences, which has been a fantastic experience. Um, the the um, so and then obviously you know I, I've I read academic papers and I'm I'm constantly doing my own research as well. So there's this kind of huge bubble of information, and then every now and then, and it's not normally you know this this is a kind of well known thing for for most people. If you sit down at your desk and say right, I am now going to have a brilliant idea, it, it won't. It's not that's not what happens. What will happen instead is. I'll be lying awake in bed, you know, waiting for the alarm to go off, or I'll be on a bike ride, or I'll be, you know, doing some digging in the garden, and and all of a sudden, something will pop into my head, and it either a you know a new idea or a way of dealing with a problem that I've been been struggling with, um, and I, you know, where where's that idea come from? Well, it's it's almost certainly come from the synthesis of all of this information that I that I've been absorbing, but uh, you know. I couldn't tell you, oh, yes, now that was definitely inspired by the footnote on this academic paper. Or actually, you know what? That was something that, that Jerry said in episode, you know, 165 or whatever. You know, you, the, I can't pin it down like that. Right? So, I, but um, so I don't really know is the answer. And I think if any, if most people are being honest, 
they don't know where their ideas come from. If anyone could say, yes, this idea came from X, well, that's not really an idea, it's plagiarism. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know. It's not, ne- it's not necessarily a bad thing to, 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 to copy or... At least, no, if someone's done a research paper on something that looks interesting, yeah, I'm going to go and test that myself, definitely, and see, see if, if, it, if it works and if it's an interesting result. Um, but in terms of new ideas that, that are kind of original to me, or they're not really original, they're coming from this, this you know, big, big cloud of, of, uh, of, of sort of inspiration, if you like. So, so yeah, I, I think the, the, the only way to come up with good ideas is to read a lot, listen a lot, think a lot, you know, do your own stuff. And uh, with experience and time, you know, you, you'll, you'll get your own, your own ideas, I think. I'm curious. You picked episode one six five. That was, Why did you mention one six five? It was a completely arbitrary number. I don't even know. But, but you know, if Jerry you know, was on today, that episode, no, no, no. Today is episode one six five. Is Isn't it really crazy? Yes. <laughs> That's why I thought. Whoa, wow. this is uh, weird. So that there you go. That's an, an example. <laughs> that is of, something that of, um, divine, is beyond d- yeah. divine inspiration. And the num- the first number so. that popped into my head was one six five, which I didn't oh even God. consciously know was today's episode. Okay, all right, okay. There we are. Okay, so I'm going to leave your dynamic optimization for later, but I do want to just maybe touch on this last thing that you uh, mentioned. I think we can squeeze that in which is an interesting article you uh, you uh, referred to me, uh, written by Nicholas Rapner of uh, Factor Research, who's kind of an indirect friend of the show, I, I think it's fair to say. And then you wrote something, and I was trying desperately to figure out what the hell does he mean? TLDR, not great for short-term momentum. So now I'm really interested what the hell is TLDR? TLDR means too long, don't read. So this is this is oh. this is when when you write something on the internet, it, if you want to kind of give a short abstract summary, you say TLDR. You know, here's my here's the one sentence summary. And, and I was thinking, you know, what kind of uh, what kind of indicator is that? Well, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, enlighten us now that you've enlightened me about that. Talk to me about. Um, yeah, so I'm. I must say, I'm. I'm a big fan of of uh, factor research. Um, yeah, the the, the this worth definitely worth following their stuff, and they they're off. They often also republish stuff that's been on other other blogs. So they're kind of you know they're an aggregator in a sense. Um, and this particular piece actually, I think, was originally was published in ETF Insider. But basically, what what uh, Nicholas has done is is to sort of take take a simple measure of 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 short term momentum. And um, the reason why he's looked at short-term momentum and his kind of motivation was was he thinks that kind of individual investors are more focused on short-term momentum, and I think that's a valid a valid point. I do think, yeah, that, you know, they they do tend to focus on quite short-term momentum when, when you know, and not necessarily even consciously calling it momentum, but saying, "Oh, this thing's gone up this week. I'm going to buy it." Yeah. So there we go. Um, so what what he's done is 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 quite nice. He's done a back test going back quite a long way. So in in for developed markets, he's gone back to uh, 1926. So that's a good a good length of back test. Um, for um, emerging markets and metals, he's gone back not quite as far to 1970. But that's still pretty far back. Um, and he's also done crypto, which obviously he's only gone back a few years because you know we don't have a history there. Um, he's basically tracked, you know, kind of done a little um, account curve for short term momentum and seen how it's done. 
Um, and there's this really interesting pattern in that it, uh, short-term momentum pretty much for him stopped working in, in sort of the late 80s for most developed markets. Uh, so it stops working in the S&P, the Nikkei, the DAX. Um, interestingly, he's also tacked on the, the, the FTSE 250. And I'm not sure why he's used the, two, the 250. The 250 is actually a mid-cap index. 100 is the, the large-cap index. Um, but anyway, and, and that for that, um, the, the, the same story applies, but much later. So there was actually a period from the mid-80s to about 2008 where this thing did really well in the short-term momentum. But now, again, it's it's going down. Uh, and these things are going down. And that means that, abstract away from trading costs, you'll actually make money from short-term mean reversion markets rather than from short-term trend following. So, so that that's quite 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 interesting. Um, and he sees a similar pattern in emerging markets, but again, it happens quite quite late, gold and silver, um, and crypto. And, and basically, his his thesis, and I'm not sure whether there's enough evidence here, but it's kind of I like the thesis, I like the idea. I'm not sure that a dozen account curves is enough proof of this, but his thesis is that as markets become more kind of um, mature, we talked about them, mm-hmm. you know, Bitcoin becoming a mature market earlier. As markets become more mature, um, short-term momentum is less likely to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, you can think of all kind of plausible reasons for that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I can certainly confirm, and I've, I've done this myself, you look at short-term momentum, momentum in equity indices and actually over a much larger data set than he's used over all the ones I've got in my database, um, there's, there is this very clear hockey stick pattern where it does very well until around 80, 85, 90, roughly, and then it just flatlines and doesn't make any money at all. And actually, after costs, it loses money. So that, that for me, is not a surprising finding. Um, but it, it's kind of interesting to, to sort of think about that in other markets and potentially also in crypto. So maybe a measure of how mature a market's becoming like crypto is you know, has it has it now sort of lost the ability to make money in, in short-term momentum? Um, so there's the kind of the, that sort of philosophical point, but then separately from that, for us, you know, a very hard practical point is you should be quite careful about using short-term momentum in, in equity indices in particular. Um, it does look like, it's not often I say that, 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 you know, I often say we should treat every market the same. It's not often that I make an exception to that. This appears to be one of the exceptions to that rule. Maybe those guys should then go and look at the cheese and the milk, which is less developed. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> very interesting. Great stuff, uh, as usual, Rob. Um, very, very interesting and insightful. Let me quickly run down performance numbers, and then I've got a little bit of the news for uh, next week, which I think is exciting. So as of Thursday, as I'm, as we've mentioned, it was a little bit of a rough start to November, um, although yesterday might have been an okay day. Um, but as of Thursday, anyways, the beta 50 was down uh, about 1% uh, for the month of November, up 10.39% so far this year. Sockgen CTA index down 68 basis points, but still up 9.13% for the year. Sockgen trend index down a little bit more than 1%, 107, um, but still up very strong, 12.73% for the year. And the Sockgen short-term traders index, uh, apropos the uh, discussion on short-term momentum, down 36 basis points, up 1.9% for the year. Uh, as I mentioned before, trend, my trend barometer was weak at the moment, confirming uh, harder times, um, down to 25 MSCI World roaring away up another 1.8% so far this month, up 20% uh, plus change uh, so far this year. 
And world government bonds having a great start to the month, up almost 1% on all the central bank news. Now, before we wrap up, let me say that next week, uh, as I mentioned, Moritz is out. So I've invited uh, a very old friend of mine, known him for a couple of decades, um, and he was actually the first guest on the volatility series recently, Harry Krishnan, um, one of the smartest people I've ever come across. And Harry and I actually wrote a book together. He probably did most of the writing. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. But Harry uh, and I did a book together. That sounds better. Did a book together. Uh, the Many Flavors of Trend Following, which people can download for free on the website. Although the new website, it doesn't show up. But I think it's somewhere in the... Otherwise, I'll get it up there soon. By the way, I hope people are enjoying the new website. Um, there'll be lots more content coming on that uh, soon. But in the meantime, at least it's a better visual layout, I think. So I really look forward to this conversation with Harry because Harry, although he's an expert in volatility and tail risk protection, he also knows a lot about trend following. So next week, he's going to be wearing his trend following hat. So that's going to be fun. But do send us your questions and um, we will deal with them. And of course, info at toptradersonplug.com is the email address for you to send them. I think that's going to be it for today. Um, we have a hard stop, so we're going to live up to that. And so from Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, check out the next volatility uh, episode coming out on Wednesday. And take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.